beginning of time, people have struggled with this idea of greatness and of wanting to be great. If you, if you look out on the world today, you have people saying, greatness is what's in my wallet. Greatness is my position at work. Greatness is what everybody else thinks about me. And it's, it's just something that whether we try to aim at or not, is something that I think everybody would like to have inside of themselves, to have everybody to appreciate how great a person they are. If you are in the NFL, you're the greatest because you won the Super Bowl. If you are at school, you could be considered the greatest because you get straight A's. If you're a scientist and you come up with a cure for some disease or cancer, that's pretty special, right? And people even say that the greatest pastor is the guy with the biggest church, with the most people, and he finds his, himself on the radio and on the TV. Those are the worldly viewpoints of what is called greatness. And we're going to see kind of what the contrast is to that. What is the difference between the world's view of greatness and what God's view is? Because the disciples have found themselves in a situation where they, they, each, all 12 of them, want to be the greatest in the eyes of God. And Jesus has some words for them about what it really does take to be great. And it's the kind of thing that anybody can do at any age. It doesn't take being a disciple. It doesn't take years and years of practice, or it shouldn't take years and years of practice. It's something so simple that little kids can do it, but it's so hard as an adult because we, as we get older, we want our kids to serve us. We want other people to serve us, but to be great in God's eyes, it takes serving them. Let me, let, let me pray and ask God again for his blessing on this word. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for, for what you teach us. God, and it, it is such a simple thing that everybody can understand the importance of serving, and, and it's so difficult that, uh, because we get tired and we get frustrated and we, we don't like people that we're supposed to serve. And I just pray that we would have your heart to welcome uh, people into our lives, to, to share your gospel with them, to, to even meet a need, God. If it's whatever it is, I just pray for the help to understand that throughout this message. I pray again for your words to say, in Jesus' name, amen. So the disciples, in Luke chapter 9, it starts out they're arguing about which of them was the greatest. Luke chapter 9, verse 46, it says, And an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Now, if you think about the history of the disciples, there's only 12 of them. And if you think back to when they first started following Jesus, Jesus picked them out individually to, to be just kind of a group of people. But when it came to picking out the 12 disciples, there was a great big bunch of people. And Jesus chose 12, any, many, you're going to take you, I'm going to take you. And he had 12 disciples. Now, even just right there, you look and say, guess what? I'm kind of special. Jesus picked me out of everybody. You, you, you get, they get a little bit of pride, a little bit of puffed up, thinking, hey, we're one of the 12. Out of the whole world, out of all these people, we're one of the 12 people that Jesus picked. And you think of the things that these guys gave up. They gave up their occupations. They gave up hobbies. They gave up things in their life that were going to conflict with following Jesus. And so they can start thinking, well, we really are special. We got picked. We're giving up a lot in order to follow Jesus. They were sent out a couple weeks ago, two by two, to go and do things for Jesus. They were able to go and preach the gospel. They were healing people. They were casting out demons. They were uh, alleviating suffering that people were going through. And you just, you look at them and you say, wow, these guys really are something special. And the disciples have this picture in their, in their own minds. We are something special. And they start arguing about which of them was the greatest. 
Now, with the, with the rest of the world, it's not much of a comparison, right? You just you hear all those things that the disciples gave up, what they were able to do. You compare that with the rest of the world. That's not special really at all because nobody out there can do what these disciples can do. And I think they kind of go, okay, we're the 12. Now, which of us is the greatest? And I don't know what they're arguing about or, or how this discussion came about or why they're arguing, but I imagine it has something to do with the last couple of weeks' events because... Uh, two weeks ago, one quarter of the disciples, so that's three out of the 12 disciples, went up with Jesus on a mountain. They saw Jesus transfigured. They saw Jesus' true colors, but there's only three of them. Now, if you're one of the 12 and now you're one of the three, aren't you feeling like you're something special? Because there's nine other people who didn't make the cut. They didn't get to go and see this with Jesus. And while they're up there, the other nine disciples are struggling to cast out a demon. They're doing it in their own strength so that they cannot do it. So I can picture that these three disciples who had been up with Jesus, when they're all back together walking down the road, they're starting to get a little cocky. They're probably thinking like, yeah, you guys, you couldn't do this, and, but we got to see Jesus, and we got to meet Moses, and we got to meet Elijah. And so they're starting to argue about which of them was the greatest. And, and you can probably see pretty easily that struggle, but they may even take it a step farther. This is what happened in the past, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to become greater in Jesus' eyes because I'm going to do more miracles. I'm going to preach more messages. I'm going to heal more people, and I'm going to go farther and do more than all you disciples combined. And I think they're just saying, hey, I'm going to outdo you, just like little kids on a, on a competition. I'm going to go farther. I'm going to jump farther. I'm going to run faster than everybody else. These guys are looking at themselves, comparing each other, saying, I'm going to be the greatest. And Jesus happens to overhear this. And we'll look at how he responds to that in a minute. But they're, they're, they're trying to decide who's the greatest for Jesus. Now, they're not the only people who, who get in that boat. Uh, anybody here ever argue with anybody else about how great you were and how many things good you did for God? I've never heard really two people verbally arguing about that. I mean, I even with all the years I've gone to church, I've never heard two people say, well, I'm greater than you, and I'm greater than you. So probably you haven't either. I have heard people who wanted my job back in Davenport before I left try to convince me that they were more qualified than the guy who got the job, that they were, they were, they were more experienced, they'd been around longer, and they were the better person for the job, which in both cases, I don't agree with either of them. The person who got the job was the right person to get the job. So we probably don't argue with each other and say, wow, I'm greater than Leslie, I'm greater than Jill, I'm greater than Gary, and great Gary's greater than Steve. Those kinds of things we probably don't argue about. But have you ever thought in your mind, you know what, I really do do a lot for God. I am more special than other people. Or look what I'm doing for God versus what everybody else is doing. You know, maybe because you were asked to be a Sunday school teacher and somebody else wasn't. Today's the annual business meeting. Maybe you think, uh, I'm elected, and, or maybe multiple times I've been elected, so I must be doing more in God, for God. God's happier with me than he is with other people. Or maybe you got this list in the back of your mind of all these things that I've done for God, and you know that there's most of the other people in this church or other people outside this church who haven't done those things. And it's easy to think, God must be happier with me than he is with other people. And I'm, I'm going to tell you that, you know what, I can struggle with that too. Uh, how many people here uh, have been to church for 50 to 51 out of 52 weeks a year since birth? 
Okay, great. You know what? The only times I ever got out of church was if I was sick, and even then I had to listen to a sermon. And when I moved out on my own, it was so ingrained into my brain that I still went to church. On vacation, we went to church. It didn't matter where we were at. We found some place to go to church. Um, I've helped with Awana for 20 years. I'm working on my 21st year. Um, I've gone on short-term mission trips as a kid, and I've led short-term mission trips, not to other countries, but to other towns. I've been a youth pastor for three years. This is now my first full year as a senior pastor here in Plevin, the First Baptist Church. Can anybody else say that you've done those things? Probably not. And if I, you know what the world calls those things? I mean, you hear those things, you thought, man, Josh is full of himself. I can't believe he's telling us that he has done all those things. But you know what? That's what the world calls greatness. They look at that long list of things and say, man, that's something special. But you know what? God doesn't think of it that way. You know what? If, if Jesus was to come in here and hear me say all that and hear me be all pride and uh, proud and puffed up about all the things I have accomplished, he wouldn't shake my hand and say, hey, Josh, good job, or pat me on the back or say, boy, keep up the good work because I'm so proud of you. He would have done exactly for me what he did for the disciples and given them a real picture of what true sacrifice and true servanthood is all about. He would have had Caleb come up here and he would have told me exactly what he told all the disciples. Now Caleb, he's my son. I think everybody knows that. He's eight years old. I, I prepped him on this because I didn't know if he'd come up here first. But he's just an average kid, right? He's blonde hair. He's got blue eyes. He's just a happy-go-lucky kid. He's got a scar back here on the back of his head. And he's got other skinned-up issues. And he's, he's just the average kid. And you know what Jesus would have told me? Had I been all puffed up and proud about all the things that I've done, he would have said, hey, you know what, Josh? I want you, I'm going to take this little kid, I'm going to sit him right next to me. Because in the Jewish culture, because that's what Jesus did. He took uh, this little boy and had him sit by him or stand by him. And in the Jewish culture, that was the prime spot for where the best seat in the house was right next to Jesus. And Jesus didn't just invite this little boy to the crowd and say, hey, you can join our little group here. He says, you can have the best spot. And he would have said, Josh, you know, if you want to be great, uh, you know, you welcome somebody like him into your life. I want to get the words right here. He says, Josh, whoever welcomes this little child in my name, guess what? Josh, he's welcoming me. And whoever welcomes this little boy, Josh, welcomes the one who sent me. Because he who's least among you, he is the greatest. Thank you. You did a good job. He's not... He's not wowing me and proud of anything that we've done. I mean, it's great that we do those things, but he says, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you're, you got it all wrong, Josh. This is, you're just like the disciples who are looking at what they've accomplished, and the world says, yeah, that's great that you've done all those things, and for that many years, but God's not impressed with that. <clears throat> and the disciples, that's what they were doing. But Jesus didn't rebuke the disciples for wanting to be the greatest. He rebuked them for the way they went about trying to be the greatest. And when, when Jesus was talking about this little child, it wasn't because this little child was something special. This was just an average little kid. I could have picked Taven, or I could have picked Tegan, or I could have picked all sorts of other little boys and said, hey, why don't you come up here? The thing that this little boy represents is not just kids. It represents everybody else in that community who's considered helpless and irrelevant and really not of great importance, because that's what they thought about their kids. They're just 
another mouth to feed. Uh, they had this Jewish writing called the Talmud. It was not biblical, and this is how, uh, kind of how they lump kids in with the rest of these bad ideas. The first was morning sleep. You know, how many people get up and go to work, and you're out there feeding the cows, or you're on your way to work, and if somebody doesn't show up when they're supposed to because they're sleeping, do you say, good job, or are you disappointed? You think, you, really, you get up with the alarm clock, and you go to work, right? Uh, it says, midday wine. Now, I'm, I don't drink wine, but I think uh, wine can have different effects on people. It can make people loopy, which really isn't helpful, especially if you're at work, and it can make people sleepy. And so it's like, if you're going to drink it, there, it's obviously not the right time to do it during the middle of the day. The next thing he says is, chattering with children. Talking to kids, spending time with kids, interacting with kids, associating with kids, making them your friends. That's not a good idea. And hanging out in places of common people, all these things destroy a man. So the kids are as bad as sleeping in, as bad as... Uh, drinking wine at the wrong time, they say, that's a bad idea. That's what they taught people. And so all the disciples, or all the men of that community, guess what? Little kids, they stayed away from them because everybody looked down on them if they were going to be hanging out with these people. And here's Jesus saying the exact opposite thing. He says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. That'd be something a motherly type of, of woman would do, or a girl, to watch these kids. But those disciples would stay far, far away from. And you find out in Luke 18 that the disciples struggle with this because the parents are trying to bring their little kids to Jesus, and guess what the disciples do? Go away. Now's not the time. Jesus is not interested in this. And Jesus says, wait a second. Let those kids come here. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world, which, don't quote me, that was not in the Bible. But Jesus loves the little children, and so he's willing to go against what the Jewish teachings are, and he, he invites these kids to be, to he associates with them, and he hangs out with them. Jesus one time, in Luke 14, we're going to get to this, that he was invited over for supper. And this is another thing, it's, it's kind of in contrast with man's view of greatness, because man says, it's about the money, it's about the position, it's about what everybody thinks about you not about something as simple as being a servant. And he gets invited over for lunch. And this, these are going to sound like some harsh words that he gives to this guy. It says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Did that just kill all your Christmas plans? Right? Uh, wait a second. No. Obviously, it's going to be okay for you to get together as a family. It's okay to have Christmas. It's okay to have dinners. I know that big families like to get together for things. And that's great. Keep it up. I mean, that would be a sad world if all of a sudden I had to just say no to my whole family and to Christmas because of these verses. But the idea is, don't just do that. Don't just invite people who say can repay you, who are going to return in kind. From time to time, include somebody else that's not part of your family that's not going to be able to repay you back. Or just have this completely separate dinner and say, everybody else I want to invite, and they can't repay you because they don't have the money, they don't have the cooking abilities, they don't have the resources to, to repay you. All they can do is say thank you, and he says, 
Be willing to associate with those people. All those little kids, they can't really do a lot. I mean, I know they can, and it's probably a step on all the little kids' toes because they say, I'm a cowboy, and I, and I can do the dishes, and I can do uh, the beds and clean the house and all that kind of stuff, but it takes, you've got to teach them that. And how many of you can be a better cowboy than your kids? How many of you can wash the dishes better than your kids? How many of you can clean the bathrooms better, right? And it's like they, we're training them up to, to do certain things, but really they can't do those things on their own. Um, Billy said it would be great to go be a missionary. And she can do that at school, but she can't go to Africa and be a missionary right now. Uh, Billy says, or Johnny says, I'd like to be a cop. He can't do those kinds of things right now. They, it takes time and it takes effort for these kids to grow up to be able to do that. And so the idea is be willing to associate and hang out with people who aren't going to repay you. They, all they can do is say, thank you, I appreciate it, but I can't, I can't return the favor. Now, it might be easy to be thinking like, yeah, this idea of being great, sure, you want to, Todd, you want to be the greatest, go knock yourself out. You go ahead and be the greatest. You invite all those people over, but me, I'm not interested in that. I don't, I'm not interested about, about being a servant or about uh, making, making other people feel good or, or, or associating with people that I don't really like. That's not really me. But it's not just for Todd. It's not just for Steve. It's not just for Gary. It's for all of us at whatever age we are, whatever stage of life we're in, we are all called to be a servant to other people. Now, the disciples, uh, they, they're getting kind of like a little scolding for, for wanting to be the greatest disciple. And I, their, their motives are all wrong. They have the right idea that they want to be the greatest disciple, but their motives are all wrong for how they're going about that. But I want to stop and say, um, I want to give a little thumbs up to these disciples because they were trying to be the greatest disciple. They, they could have done Try, try to be great in every other area of life. They could have said, you know, I'm going to be the greatest fisherman that ever has ever been in the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to be the greatest tax collector. I'm going, to, I'm going to do all these things to be the greatest at my job. They could have said, you know what, I'm going to pick up a hobby and be the best at it. I'm going to be the greatest tent builder. Fish by day, or, or you know, I collect taxes by day, but I'm a tent builder by night, and I'm the best tent builder there ever was. Or maybe they, they said, I'm going to be the greatest dad that I can be. I'm going to go to all my kids' camel races and support them. They could have said, I'm going to excel at those things. But they said, I want to be the best disciple for Jesus. And so I want to say kudos to them. They wanted to be the best that they could be at that position. But how many of us would fit into that same category of wanting to be the best disciple for Jesus? the best follower for Jesus? Is Jesus like the priority in our life to, hey, I want to serve him? Or does he get the leftovers? Or he gets the end of the day? Or if I happen to have time for Jesus and doing something for him? Is, is it, you know, there's, there's far too many people. I mean, one person is too many. But have you ever heard anybody say, I don't care really uh, what I get in heaven as long as I just make it? As long as I just get my own little corner of the world or of, of heaven to sit in, it's better than the alternative. I know people who say that, and it's like, you know what? You're totally missing this. This is not what God intended. He didn't intend for you to just barely, by the skin of your teeth, get into heaven and sit in a corner because, yay, you made it. He has something that he wants us to do. And a lot of people, just, they're just happy to be there. But then there's also a lot of people who grudgingly and unhappily serve God because they know that this is what I'm supposed to do. I was, it was ingrained in my brain 
that I was supposed to serve God, and I do it every day, all the time. But there's some people who, like, they do it grudgingly. Well, I got to go to church. I got to go to Awana. I got to help with VBS, and I got to tell people about Jesus, and I just have to do these things, but they don't want to do them. That's backwards, too. It should be exactly what you find in Ephesians 6-7. It says, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Whatever you're called to do, look at those people as if this is Jesus that I'm serving, as this is Jesus that I'm helping, this is Jesus that I'm trying to connect to. All these people that I'm trying to uh, do something for, look at it as if it was Jesus. It also says in verse 8, or six, chapter, Ephesians 6, verse 8, it says the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good that he does. You're supposed to serve people. It's a command. But God doesn't say, hey, just be a slave and serve each other. He says, if you do, I will reward you for that. I will reward you for the things that you do. Like what we looked at here just a second ago, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. So in other words, today when we're eating lunch downstairs because everybody wants to stay for the annual business meeting and somebody spills their food all over the floor, if you go and you help pick up that food off the floor for some little kid that's building, guess what you're doing? You're picking that food up for Jesus. You know, if you're at work and there's somebody who's strange and they're, they're an outcast and they're just kind of by themselves, and you say, you know what, I'm going to go sit by this person and try to be their friend. And I'm going to try to associate with that person. Guess who you're associating with? Jesus. That's who you're associating with is with Jesus. And when you have your Christmas celebration or, or some other dinner and you invite somebody over that is kind of an outcast or somebody who doesn't really fit in or somebody that you thought, I don't really want to hang out with this person, but you do it anyway, guess who you just invited over? Jesus. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for Jesus. And that's a pretty exciting thing. If you, if you can train your brain to look at every person like Leslie is Jesus, Dale is Jesus, Connie is Jesus, Arlie is Jesus. Every single person that you see is, this is I'm doing this for Jesus. It'll change your world. Things are going to be completely different. It's going to be a whole lot easier to serve people if I just look at it like I'm doing it for Jesus. I don't like this person. They, they get on my nerves. They're annoying to me. They're weird. They're different. I don't, we don't see eye to eye, but they're Jesus so that I can do this. And nobody's off the hook for this. Every single one of us are given the same call, the same task, the same responsibility of trying to serve other people. Now, when you think about the, the greatest example of serving, who comes to mind? You know, right now, we're getting ready for Christmas. We have a Christmas tree. We sang lots of Christmas songs. That was a lot of fun. Well, obviously, the greatest example of a servant is Jesus. Did he come to earth so that we could have another day to get together with family and have a meal so that now we can exchange gifts for a reason? Those things are nice, and they're great. And I say, hey, keep it up. you got traditions. you got uh, things like that that you can do. Keep doing those things. But Jesus didn't come so that we could do those things. Jesus came to this earth to live as a baby, uh, to, to, to grow up and be a perfect sacrifice so he could die on the cross to pay for our sins. He's the greatest example, and it starts at Christmas. And when he came, we saw in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, how Jesus veiled his heavenly glory to be here on earth. And it talks about how he became a servant. He became in a human form so that he could die on the cross to pay for our sins. 
And Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Who should be serving who? Really, if we stop and think about, say, just the magnitude of what we're getting because we get heaven, we should be serving Jesus. When he's down on earth, Mary and Joseph and the disciples and everybody who's ever created should have been bowing at his feet and trying to, to uh, answer any requests that he had. But Jesus said, that's not why I came. I didn't came so that you guys could serve me now. I came so that I could serve you. And I'm going to take a form just like you so that I can do something for you that you guys cannot do yourself and so that you can have eternal life. So this Christmas season, I want to encourage you, like I have to encourage myself, to make sure that my idea of greatness lines up with his. It's not based off of uh, a gift that I gave. It's not based off of kudos on a message. It's not based off of uh, anything that I, that I do that the world says, wow, you're great because you've been at your job for 30 years and you've, uh, you've, you gave this gift. But it's because of being a servant like Jesus and treating each other like they were Jesus themselves. So I just want to encourage you to make that your gift to people this year, to be a servant and to serve others as if they were Jesus himself. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. I encourage you to shoot for that. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the fact that you're willing to be a servant and that you're willing to come to this earth and, and to, to experience what it was like to be a man and to die on a cross, God, so that we can have eternal life. You didn't come here so that we could uh, worship you now the way you deserve, but you came here to serve. And I pray that you'd help each of us, God, to have that same thought in our mind that we should serve each other. And when it gets hard, please just flash this thought in our head that we need to, to look at each other like they are you and to serve them as if they were you. And I pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.